I'm a professor in the biology department. So the question uh, I also often get is, what is your preferred organism or what is your organism of preference? And they say, in silico, the computer. What do you mean? Well, for me, whether it is Homo sapiens or chimpanzee or yeast or you name it, it's the same. It's a signal and I'm reading off the signals, prepare the model, give it to, to my colleague in biomedicine or something else, and uh, then they can interpret that model. Welcome to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. My name is Nathalie von der Lea, and in this episode I talk to Jan Komolowski, Senior Professor in Bioinformatics at Uppsala University and Fellow at SCAS within the Natural Sciences Program in the academic year of 2020-2021. Jan Komolowski is an international leader in the area of artificial intelligence for life sciences. His research focuses on modeling biological systems from big genomic data with machine learning and statistical methods. At the center of his work are models of complex regulatory mechanisms as they change in response to genetic and environmental factors. And this is the second episode within our theme Artificial Intelligence and we will talk about AI and life sciences, among other things. Very welcome to SCAS Talks and the studio. Would you like to say a few words about yourself? I thought I would study physics, but my younger brother wanted me not to give him the path to follow. So I chose mathematics. Then I realized that mathematics was too abstract for me. So I uh, quickly changed uh, into computer science. That was a very good move many, many years ago, before computer science sort of existed. In years to come, I got a PhD in uh, computer science at Linköping University, and Sweden became my second, or maybe even first, home country. And then I uh, moved to the United States. I got a position with Harvard University. I was an assistant professor in computer science. Eventually, I got into the field of medical informatics. In the 90s, I switched to... Uh, to bioinformatics. And that uh, has appeared to be sort of the return point to my first love, physics. It appeared that I really liked modeling, using formal, well-founded mathematical tools to describe the quote-unquote reality. Yeah, and a lot of things have happened uh, in these um, past decades, if you think about bioinformatics and the whole medical field with genomics and so on. It all happened because we've got uh, an incredible increase in computational power and storage. It's quite interesting that uh, some of the people were very predictive. Stanislav Hulam noticed in 1975 that what mathematics did to physics, computer science will do at that time to biology. And he was very, very right. There weren't yet any sequences stored on the computers. We didn't think about sequences and recognizing where the genes are or promoter regions or whatever. Yet he already foresaw the coming change. 
And I think we, we are seeing today yet another change. Let's start with your research then. Very briefly, what is it about? When there is so much data available about living systems, it appears that it's not anymore possible to look at the data to find answers to interesting questions. What we do as bioinformaticians, we are partners to life scientists, mostly molecular medical researchers, molecular biology researchers. We help them build models, taking the data and building some essentially mathematical structures that can be interpreted by experts in the area. One of the most exciting technologies that we, we can apply is machine learning. So I'm looking at uh, gene expression. Some genes go down, some genes go up, and uh, try to associate their combinations to the outcomes to observe the diseases. These observations can be formalized in computer programs generated by machine learning algorithms. And then they can be used for diagnostic purposes, or even more excitingly, they can be used for making discoveries. Yeah, we will get back to some example later on. This is an episode within our theme, Artificial Intelligence. What is your definition of AI? I don't have any. I don't think that there is any definition of artificial intelligence. It's like with mathematics. We all know what mathematics is, but there is no commonly agreed definition of mathematics. At least, I've never heard one. A similar situation with artificial intelligence. Perhaps we can list a number of disciplines that are used by artificial intelligence. Machine learning is perhaps the most used one at this time, but also image processing, understanding images, natural language processing or natural language understanding. These are some of the typical application areas and methods. But on the other side, we also have... Uh, quite a lot of research from a completely different angle, say cognitive sciences, psychology, sociology, human interfaces design, how we make computers not only sort of type out an answer, but also how we can communicate through various channels, both visual and audio, maybe even in the future direct neuronal communication. This is an exciting field because it combines a lot of very different areas, subfields, uh, you name it. And that's also a challenge. How do you use AI in your research? I would say firstly that I use a subfield of AI, machine learning, and other tools which perhaps are not really artificial intelligence, statistics, discrete mathematics tools, uh, methods. The exciting thing is that we are working with very complex systems, living systems. We have huge amounts of data, perhaps not as big yet as in physics. But on the other hand, we have incredibly many more entities, quote-unquote atoms. I wouldn't really call them atoms or electrons or protons, but the number of entities in the biological research is much bigger than in the world of uh, particles in physics, I think. We have uh, ontological issues, what is important, what we should measure. And then uh, when we got techniques that can read all the DNA 
of a living organism of a cell or tissue. And we can look at all the gene expression at the same time and over time. And we can look at, say, so-called uh, methylation sites in the DNA, metabolites. So we have huge amounts of data. And then it's obviously not human eye to read all of this. We need uh, computers to sift through the data. And incidentally, being Polish, I also use Polish methods. One is the so-called uh, rough sets, which is a development of the late professor Zdzisław Pawlak in the 80s, which is based on a mathematical development of Boolean reasoning. That's not Polish, of course. But the basic idea is that when looking at, say, one million variables, I want to only know which are important variables. There are methods both in Boolean reasoning and in statistics, Monte Carlo, also a Polish invention by Stanisław Ulam, to sift through the data and find out what is important. So then when we get the variables or the features that are significant, we can start to build models. And many people would use black box solutions, so-called black box solutions, which provide very high quality predictive models. We are looking at discoveries. So we want to understand who contributes and in what ways to the outcome. We want to know which of the genes participated in creating that process or disturbing that process, or possibly, and much more often so, combinations of those. So we use explicit or transparent uh, modeling methods based on this Polish invention rough sets. And the applications are numerous. I'm a professor in the biology department. So the question uh, I also often get is, what is your preferred organism or what is your organism of preference? And they say, in silico, the computer. What do you mean? Well, for me, whether it is Homo sapiens or chimpanzee or yeast or you name it, it's the same. It's a signal, and I'm reading off the signals, prepare the model, give it to, to my colleague in biomedicine or something else, and uh, then they can interpret that model. So the fascinating part of research uh, in this area is that it's collaborative. Can you give our listeners an example of your research, one of your research projects that you are working on? A very interesting uh, project that we are now doing together with my American colleagues in Seattle, University of Washington, is understanding how rhesus macaques, small monkeys, acquire protection against the SIV virus, simian immunodeficiency virus, a corresponding virus is HIV, human immunodeficiency virus. So there has been a very interesting uh, groundbreaking development in vaccine construction. Louis Picker of Portland, Oregon, has come up with uh, an interesting new vaccine that begins to work for more than 50% of the monkeys, but not all of them. And the question is, which and why 
some of the animals develop protection and some won't. We look at the so-called gene expressions. So we take, well, my colleagues do that, take blood samples before vaccination, few days after, several times after the vaccination, then around a uh, injection called boost, 15, 20 weeks after the, the first injection. And once again, there are a number of samples taken. About two years later, we take one more sample, a couple more samples, and the poor animals are injected to live virus. And some will become sick, some won't. So we look at which genes were expressed or not expressed, and try to figure out what combinations of genes, expressed, not expressed, leads to protection. We were selected by the University of Washington to move forward this uh, part of knowledge. So this is a very exciting project with huge importance for the humans. Yeah, and also makes me think about this whole pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic, and how differently people reacted to the virus and also how differently well the vaccine protected. You touch upon an interesting piece of research. We have also looked, together with the colleagues in Seattle, at COVID patients. We have looked into understanding what makes people resistant to that virus. So not uh, how badly they will be hit, but who are those who are resistant to COVID? This is unpublished yet, so I cannot talk much about it, but there are some interesting findings. So that's very exciting research. It is. It's also exciting because although some ground was laid uh, by my uh, colleagues in the past, we also can contribute to the development of methods. So it's both a computer science uh, theoretical research, design of human interfaces to predictive classificatory machine learning systems, but also it feels good to contribute almost directly to the human well-being. Back to machine learning, you had already touched upon this. You use transparent systems. Why is that so important? Oh, this is an uphill battle, I would say. Most of the applications today, and rightly so, are done by deep learning systems, where you give a huge amount of examples annotated with outcomes. So take, for example, histopathological images of uh, prostate samples, biopsies, and then uh, you will have an experienced doctor or a team of doctors to annotate, that is to diagnose from the pictures, is it cancer, is it not cancer, and where it is. So after you have one million of such pictures, you can develop a very successful diagnostic algorithm that given the one million first image of the biopsies, it can predict with a very high accuracy, whether it is cancer or not, and in which places. And this is very exciting, that we can have such tools. Not that we want to replace the humans, but to speed up. So we ourselves don't use exactly those methods, but we are looking into seizures in epileptic patients. 
and doctors will have uh, 10 hours of recordings from the signals of the brain in 24 channels, and then they have to look through them to find out where was there any seizure. And we can now build uh, computational tools that help find out such abnormalities, anomalies in the signals. So that's when you just get the answer. Now, many times, and I would use uh, perhaps a uh, lay example, you apply for a loan in the bank, say a mortgage, and you are rejected. The bank tells you, sorry, sir, sorry, ma'am, we won't give you a loan. And you ask why. The clerk answers you, the machine told us, the computer told us so. And this is very frustrating because you think that you have enough income, you pay all your bills, you're not delinquent on credit cards, you haven't made any, uh, you know, mistakes, financial mistakes, and yet you are rejected. And this is a true case. I have a, a colleague in the United States who was rejected for a mortgage, and he didn't understand why it was so, didn't get an answer from the bank, and took him a year to discover that his insurance company for his car was undercharging him for $5 a month. So over the years, he became delinquent, you know, $60 a year, a couple of years, and uh, there was a uh, delinquency. But he had to discover it himself. So this is why we need, for certain applications, transparent systems. So when you get a decision, you are not eligible for a mortgage, you ask the question, why? And then the system tells you this or that. In biology or in medicine, if I am to diagnose, is it cancer, not cancer, fine. But if I'm doing research and I don't understand the reasons for relapsing acute myeloid leukemia, I want to know why it is so. So say, if I look at gene expression, I want to know which genes contribute that I have a relapse in given patients. And that's why the transparent methods that allow you direct interpretation are advantageous in doing knowledge discovery. So you get to understand, you can go back and check why the computer made this decision and what is going on behind the answer. Yes, and this accountability is very important also from the legal point of view. European Union is now requesting that software designed for decision support in medicine be accountable, be explicable. So we need to be able to explain why the decisions are made. Because even if we say there is a doctor who takes the responsibility, this is not really true because the doctor will look at the system ah, yes, this is that cancer or this is that uh, disease and we use this treatment. And then it's very easy to forget about the question why we are making this decision. I have another example. In California, uh, the uh, court system wanted computational support for releasing prisoners earlier. So they went to a company which used deep learning algorithms to implement decision support system for the judges to release or not to release earlier a prisoner. A year later, it was discovered that the system was heavily biased against Afro-Americans. They were treated much more negatively than the white, the Caucasians. So 
they went to the court system, went and asked for an explanation. Oh, we cannot explain it. This is our IP, intellectual property. When they pressed for, they said, the company said, well, we don't know. You gave us the data and we developed a system. And that's not the way to go. We need accountability. The poor judge has to quote this rule, that rule, this paragraph, this reason, etc., for keeping the prisoner in prison or releasing. So in this case, we need uh, transparent systems, definitely. But if the system, if you have this model or this system where you put in the data from the prisoners, I mean, somebody must have configured it in this way that it will have a bias, or? Right. These are the decisions of the judges, right? So this is exactly what we need to do. We need to see whether there isn't any bias in the input data because the predictor will work what it's given. This is a, a very interesting research issue now. What is really in the data? Because the algorithms for predictions are, are really good. Not that there is no problem with that, but they are mature. But we still don't know which data is needed to get good predictors. There is a lot of research to be done in terms of seeing I'm missing the data here, or this data is incorrect, or I'm mixing some of the prisoners, right? To use this example. So the input, as we said before, as you said before, is very important. Yes. But it's also important when you consider regular patients or subjects. In the very beginnings of gene expression technologies, microarrays, so-called cDNA arrays, people were very excited. Oh, now we will know everything about uh, you know, what happens during a disease or whatever the process was studied. And it appeared very soon that, first of all, we could get any answer we wanted to if there were too few examples. Because if you have very few examples and 10,000 variables, you can find anything. These are the so-called ill-defined problems. We need a lot of uh, caution to use such data. Then it may appear that people were comparing uh, data from different hospitals. And it appeared that we were discovering the differences between the sequencing machines, not the, between the patients because the bias that existed in the data was created by, say, a laboratory assistant who was creating the data from the sequences. We know about these problems today, and we need to research them further. How do you think the use of artificial intelligence and machine learning, as you've described it, will develop within the life sciences in the future? It's very difficult to predict, especially in times where the developments are so fast. I think that, as I indicated, more attention will be given to the quality of the data. I think that uh, we will have to teach the students to use such methods not as a push-button tools, but they have to understand how the tools work so that they can interpret the results also accordingly. So one thing is the development of, say, uh, curricula at universities where these tools will be taught, analyzed, and made researchers aware of the pros and cons. And I have experienced this in the recent years. My course in machine learning 
used to have uh, 10 to 15 students, but the last time I was teaching it, it had 50. And there will be another 50 next year too. I think that there will be uh, tools for the tools. Yes, ChatGBT can do a lot of interesting things. It's very difficult to see whether it's human-generated or computer-generated, but there are all the tools to discover that. I think that there will be new ways of thinking about legal issues also. It's very difficult for me to predict, you know, in which direction we'll go, what we'll be doing. But definitely much of the developments will be filling the holes. One researcher goes this direction, another researcher goes another direction, and there is some place in between. And because we have so many examples now, this is like interpolation. When we have a number of points, we can draw a line with some margin of error. So in a sense, computers will be very good in filling the holes. Whether it will be a paradigm shift, that remains to be seen. Let's talk about the paradigm shift then, since you mentioned it. Some people describe AI as a revolution, as a paradigm shift. Can you develop this a little bit? This is, of course, a rather difficult question. I think that I would use a comparison to what Thomas Kuhn has developed in his extremely seminal work, The Structure of Scientific Revolution. So Kuhn has compared the developments in astronomy. He started from Ptolemaeus, that used the Earth-centric system and was amazingly good at predicting the positions of planets. And then uh, Copernicus noticed that this is not quite good at explaining all the movements on the sky. And he introduced a new model with the sun in the center. It wasn't really accepted at that time, not only because he was a revolutionary, but also it wasn't much better than Ptolemyian system. His tools were not perfect yet. So then what happens is Galileo Galilei moves further and begins to understand more deeply the reasons for the mistakes in or the precision in the Copernican model. And then we, we have to move to Kepler, who understands how it's not circles, but ellipses. And then we can get faster, slower movement, which comes quite obvious uh, when we don't have a circle to move around. But also Galileo had made a revolutionary step in understanding the movement. Everything that moves eventually stops unless there is no friction. And Galileo Galilei, this was his revolution. He assumed there is no friction and therefore the movements can go on. So eventually we ended up with Newton, who made uh, famous equations for mechanics, and those explained the movements of the planets. So there is this kind of revolution in uh, the history of science. And then we make an incredible jump from Newtonian mechanics to quantum mechanics. I don't really think that we have the same situation in artificial intelligence today. We fill the holes, we do a lot of things incredibly much faster than in the past. We have incredibly many more data available, so we can do a lot of things, but we still do it in the same way. 
So I think that when artificial intelligence is able to reason with anomalies, with outliers, noticing that something is wrong but explainable, then we will have a true AI paradigm shift. If I understand correctly, you see um, AI more as a tool? I think I would use words of Patrick Winston, who was the director of the Artificial Intelligence Laboratory at MIT when I was a junior professor at Harvard at MIT. He was interviewed uh, one day and asked the question, aren't you afraid of machines being more intelligent than you? So he had a very cheeky answer. The first answer was, no, I'm not afraid because I'm very intelligent. Dear Patrick was very intelligent, that's the case. But he used then another comparison. Well, we walked, we ran. One day we developed other means of transportation, say cars. Some people get fat because they use too much of the car, but some continue to run even if they could take a car for that reason. We developed aeroplanes and we can uh, change continents with that. It doesn't mean that we stopped moving. So I think that you know computers play chess better than almost anyone on earth. It doesn't mean that we will stop playing chess and it doesn't mean that we will stop thinking. fellow here in the natural science program in the academic year of 2020-21. What was your experience? It was a wonderful refreshment, uh, I would say, intellectual refreshment. As a young person, I read uh, quite a lot of philosophy. I was very interested in especially Leszek Kowalkowski, a Polish philosopher, but also other Polish philosophers, phenomenology in garden, etc., a little bit of Husserl. So suddenly, you know, decennia later, coming to a uh, incredibly exciting intellectual environment in the humanities was quite a refreshment. It was a little bit difficult for me in the sense that research in humanities is done individually most often. Of course, there are also large, say, anthropology projects but I had to look in, in a different way to my stay, and it was very, very refreshing. Also, I met uh, here one of my Polish colleagues in sociology, Professor Zaritsky, who investigates, among other things, the reasons for the troubled times uh, we have in Poland these days. And as most people would know, uh, Poland went through an incredible disaster, losing a lot of people during World War II, which also continued under the communist time to a degree. And the common understanding is that one of the reasons why Poland has trouble today with democracy and uh, various you know, legal issues, etc., is due to the loss of the intelligentsia. Yes, to a degree, that's obviously correct. But surprisingly to me, Professor Zaritsky puts forward a theory that the reason for the difficulties in Poland is that the communist times and in particular, of course, the Nazi occupation of Poland destroyed the 
capitalists, the big owners, be it landowners, be it financial, this group of very rich people disappeared in Poland. They were not restored. And I don't want to defend this in any way, but if we look at other countries, and Sweden is a wonderful example, a family like Wallenberg's, I'm not discussing what kind of political voting preferences they have, but they have an incredible self-responsibility for contributing to the country. They are complementary to the state system, and they put their incredible fortune to support research developments at various levels. Poland has none of that. And that is one of the reasons why a certain conservative stability of the people who would think about the country beyond politics is absent. This was a very interesting new look at my home country, Poland, which I haven't thought that I would learn about here at SCAS. As I said, you were a fellow within the Natural Sciences Program. And what do you think this Natural Science Program could benefit from? How could you improve it? I'm not sure that I'm qualified to to make suggestions. My own uh, wish or kind of a vision that may perhaps apply to SCAS. It may be very difficult to realize, but... I think that especially junior people in life sciences would be very attracted to SCAS if they could come for, say, half a year, one term, to be together with superstars. So if SCAS can get a Nobel Prize winner in medicine and have sort of coaching approach, here I am, I have five to ten young people, and I stimulate them to think about how i done science. Then uh, perhaps we can achieve something very useful. Of course, th- what I have experienced was very useful too, but in a different way. Because it's very difficult for us to move and not to have experimental work done, not to work with the data analyze uh, with my team. So I kept my team at the university and was here too. For the junior people, I think, if they can come and learn from superstars and also exchange them in between themselves, that could be very interesting. Thank you very much for joining me here in the studio and our listeners, of course. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for listening to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. In this episode, I have talked to Jan Komorowski, Senior Professor in Bioinformatics at Uppsala University and Fellow at SCAS within the Natural Sciences Program in the academic year of 2020-2021. We have heard more about the use of machine learning in the life sciences and have also touched upon more general thoughts on artificial intelligence. This was the second episode in our theme, Artificial Intelligence, AI. The previous episode within this theme featured Eliel Camargo Molina. The title of this episode is When Technology Meets the Humanities, the Interdisciplinary World of AI. And this was episode number 49. 
SCAS Talks features a broad variety of topics, which is a reflection of the Maltin interdisciplinary research environment. We are sure that there is something of interest for everyone. Find your favorite topic or surprise yourself with something new. As always, we are very happy if you can recommend SCAS Talks to your colleagues and friends. Subscribe to us and you won't miss any new content. SCAS Talks is available on Podbean, iTunes, Spotify and most podcast apps. I would like to thank Jan Komorowski once again for talking to me. And thanks to you for listening. Bye for now.